to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today I am very excited to bring you a series of podcasts on ADHD. The first will be with Dr. Herschel Lesson. Dr. Lesson has been in community pediatric practice for 40 years and has built a group of 26 pediatric clinicians in eight locations. He has been very active in the business of medicine, heading an IPA and being on the board of a non-for-profit MCO. He has done extensive policy work for the AAP and most recently was one of the authors of the 2019 Clinical Practice Guideline on Diagnosis and Treatment of ADHD. He is also co-editor of the AAP's ADHD Toolkit for Clinicians, 3rd Edition, 2019. He has been faculty at the AAP annual meeting for decades. For 35 years, he has also worked all over the country as an expert witness in pediatric malpractice cases. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Herschel Lesson to the podcast. Hey, Herschel, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm just delighted. I, you know, in doing this, I get to talk with giants in the field and and people that are just hard workers and just do all these incredible things that benefit all of us that practice medicine. So thanks for your time. And as we get started, I always like to ask my guests, how did you get into pediatrics and and why ADHD? How did that uh, become a, such an interest for you? Well, I was one of these kids that wanted to be a doctor since I'm a toddler, I think. And um, I think it had a lot to do with because I was one of the kids that was running down the hall to try to escape. So I decided I probably wanted to be a pediatrician or a doctor to be on the right side of the needle. You know, <laughs> I just didn't want to be on the receiving end. And I always had that inclination. And you know, so I wanted to be a doctor always. I, I got to pediatrics because it dawned on me is that I could take a lot of moms complaining about their kids to the nth degree. And that's what I think, uh, you know, because you can act like a, can act crazy and get away with it. It's a pleasure. It's like playing. Oh, it is <laughs> totally, totally playing. I mean, you know, there's not a day that would go by when you're seeing kids that at some point you don't laugh because they oh, just yeah. say hilarious things and ah, it's just fun. I mean, it is a, a fun job. I think sometimes people are surprised because they're like, oh, it's so sad taking care of kids. But, you know, the the joy outweighs the, the sorrow and, you know, it's part of it, right? Why ADHD? How did you get into that? Well, I got to tell you that for the first dozen or so years after residency, I'm, I didn't even give a thought to ADHD. In fact, I wasn't even sure it existed. And it just wasn't something I did on a daily basis. It was absolutely no training for it whatsoever in the early 80s, even at name brand places. And then I had a preemie son. <laughs> okay. And he has a very colorful medical history, but he was ADHD to the max. And I'm sure he gets part of it somewhere because... Uh, like a lot of us, we are also somewhat ADHD, particularly uh, a lot in the leadership, uh, and we manage to control it with uh, some amounts of success. But my son had really bad ADHD, and that's when I decided, hey, you need to learn how to do this. And and I read, and I, I bought books, and I went to Chad, the website, and I learned stuff. And the poor kid was my guinea pig for treatment. The poor child must have been on God knows how many different medications with different regimens and different trials. And I really learned my ADHD on him. Uh, despite uh, all his challenges, um, you know, he has a house, he has a kid, he's 
you know, he's been in a variety of jobs as ADHD people are want to do, but he succeeds in all of them for a while and then he moves on. And he's lucky because he was one of the ADHD kids that everybody loved. But he was the mayor and he's managed to do well mm. based on that. <laughs> I'd yeah, go to well, visit him in Florida and he'd be sitting next to the blue haired lady at the bar at the hotel, having a conversation with her and the bartender. <laughs> So he was very good that way. And that served him very, very well. And, you know, I think ADHD can be a superpower if you know how to use it. Oh, I think that's, that's for sure. And I, you know, I think the younger generation to the changing jobs, you know, seems to be much more common. I mean, certainly, you know, for me, I had, you know, single job, you know, one big girl job and, um, you know, but, I think certainly ADHD and I kind of came up around the same era you did. And, you know, we had short acting riddle and that was it. And I feel like that was the, that was the only area that we had experience with because we had a medication. It was pre Prozac. So, you know, the other tricyclics and, you know, Haldol, I mean, I wasn't using those. So, you know, the, the psychotropic medications available just didn't exist. So it was mostly ADHD, right? Right. I mean, you didn't do any other mental health. And unfortunately, I'm not convinced that's changed much. So that's that's a digression from some of the ADHD talk, which I know is your interest. But, um, you know, my son had to chew Ritalin because he couldn't swallow, which was always mm-hmm. intriguing. And now it's now you can get it as a liquid and a patch. And yeah, there's just all scary because there must be at least 30 me too drugs, most of which, in my opinion, have very little advantage (laughs) to the old standbys. Right, right. Well, and it's complicated. I don't know, you know, certainly in my experience and I'm, I'm guessing yours, too, is the kids that come in with sort of just attentional issues or just attention and hyperactivity that respond really readily to a stimulant and that's it is a smaller group i don't know a third and then you have the others that have you know other comorbidities they've got anxiety they've got depression they have other things um learning disabilities and so you know it's so much more than just the medication and i've been doing a series of podcasts with um dr colleen cullinan who's a child psychologist mm-hmm. and she's been just so exceptional in talking about understanding the psychoed piece and the um kind of executive function the ins and outs which has been so helpful but i kind of wanted to spend our time today talking about you know what's it like for, you know, the pediatricians every, you know, day to day and identifying, assessing, managing ADHD, because it's a challenge. And, and I know the AAP has lots of different things to help us, but can you kind of walk us through some of that? I know that was a, that's a big ask, but start wherever you want and (laughs) take it where you'd like to go. Well, luckily, I somehow got myself on, and I'm not exactly sure how, got myself on the uh, the committee, subcommittee on ADHD that wrote the latest clinical guideline on treatment of ADHD in uh, kids uh, 4 to 17. And so I was involved in writing a lot of those guidelines. And what I added to the committee, I think, was a little practicality. And uh, the practice guideline changed a bit. I mean, more than a bit. It changed a bit, particularly to recognize. And and I got to write an entire paper on the barriers to treating ADHD. And that's a subsection of that practice guideline. It's in the additional materials. And it's well worth reading to say, oh, this is great, but this is why you're not going to be able to do it unless you face some of these barriers. So I was thrilled to write that. And and I had a large uh, piece of that, a a smaller piece in the uh, practice guideline itself. But, you know, the practice guideline is stuff that isn't that different (laughs) from what it's ever been. And the problem is, is that most pediatricians still are very uncomfortable with even ADHD. I had a friend who's uh, even older vintage than me, was in a group with 87 pediatricians, a large group. And he was the uh, one of two that would treat ADHD. And this is not so long ago. 
Okay, everyone else got referred to neurology, to psychiatry. Nobody wanted to deal with it. And that's a shame because ADHD is incredibly prevalent. Yeah, well, and I'm thinking about, you know, certainly kind of in knowing pediatricians around the state of Michigan, those that live in big areas like Southeast Michigan, where we have the University of Michigan or Children's in Detroit, um, or even our bigger center now in Grand Rapids, that when there are others you can refer to like neurologists and, you know, developmental behavioral pediatricians and psychiatrists hardly ever, you know, you're more able to do that. So if you can, you do, but gosh, for those that are in, you know, smaller communities like mine or in rural areas, it, it falls to us. And so I do think there are a lot of pediatricians that are really struggling with the kind of the the onslaught of mental health issues and ADHD has kind of been kind of been their bread and butter and and you know I would say certainly comfortable with stimulants for the most part but boy you start adding on the comorbid stuff and then it gets to be challenging and and I do think people are cautious and want to do the right thing so the guidelines and things like that that come out sometimes are narrow. It's when it gets complicated that it's complicated. So, I mean, you've been doing this a while. So what has been most helpful to you? And I, I mean, I think identification, you know, we can see that. But what about the assessment and the management? Um, the problem is, is that 80% of ADHD care is done by pediatricians and they I have varying level of skills. There's next to no training in residency about ADHD. I took care of more heart transplant patients than I did ADHD patients. I mean, it was appalling. And uh, we didn't learn anything about that. So you run out and practice. And too often the diagnostic criteria for using stimulants is my kid doesn't pay attention in school. The teacher says he has ADHD. And that's your diagnostic assessment. You write a prescription for a stimulant and there you go. And that is not the way to do this. So what we tried to do with the practice guideline is number one, emphasize assessment, saying you have to rule out all of the other comorbidities you mentioned because at least two thirds of the kids have a second diagnosis, whether it's anxiety, depression, ODD, learning disability, uh, things like that. Two thirds of the kids have a second diagnosis. But in the real world, all of those, A, are extremely hard to diagnose. B, you have no experience with them. Three, at least in depression, and the, since the history of the black box on SSRIs are really scary for a prescriber. And uh, so most people don't even want to touch those. And the advantage of whatever ADHD component is there is that A, we're comfortable with the medications and B, they respond magically when yeah. you got the right diagnosis. It's magic. And I tell patients, if your kid, if you aren't coming back here in a few weeks saying, oh my God, why didn't I do this earlier? Then it isn't working. If you come in scratching your head, I think it helps a little. It's not helping. With real ADHD, it's a magical transformation. And that involves many things, not just stimulants, but finding the right dose, finding the right timing, finding the right medication. That's all part of the art form of uh, doing ADHD. Mm -hmm. And it is mostly an art form because I tell my parents, this, I hope you don't get upset with this. But what I'm doing is trial and error. I'm going to start you on a medicine that I think is good. Others might disagree. They may like something else. And then I'm going to adjust his dose um, very strictly and very systematically to see if I can get to a good effect without intolerable side effects. And this is presuming I've done an adequate evaluation, which, you know, that's part of the other piece I've done, which is the ADHD toolkit. Uh, of which I'm co-editor that the Academy uh, put out and is available online. It costs some money, but it's supposed to be updated online. You no longer have to buy a new book every five years. And it's uh, hopefully a living document, but it gives you the how-to of doing this in your office and what to think about. So, you know, it's an art form. It's trial and error. 
And everybody's comfortable. You ask 50 psychiatrists, what's better, methylphenidate or right, uh, amphetamine? Right. You'll get 50 on each side. And so people need, people need to decide which one you're comfortable with and what you start with. And learn that if you don't respond to one stimulant, you haven't responded to one yeah. stimulant, you might do better on others. And so you have to have the comfort level to do that. And part of the art form also is how do you do the titration? How do you navigate insurance, which is one of the major barriers to using drugs in ADHD? I, for one, have not used one of these new drugs in forever because no insurance will pay for them. And I'm not spending my time fighting about it. I just have too much else to do. And it's sad, but it's true. And I'm saying it out loud because I think other people need to know that, is that one of the major barriers is, hey, I think a patch, skin patch would be great for your kids. And if you agree, the only trouble is no one will pay for it. So good luck with that. And the same thing is true of all the other new drugs that came out recently. Well, isn't that the frustrating thing in medicine when, you know, we're sort of, well, we are the experts in child health and yet the pushback in doing what is the best for kids is not always an option. It's not affordable. I mean, I think that's a really important point. You know, those of us in practice know full well, like you can't, you know, and it changes, you know, it might change month to month, like you know, this one used to be on the formulary and now it's not how, why, how did that happen? And, you know, and you're playing the game. Why? Because they got a better kickback. They got a better kickback this week from the makers of one drug compared to the other. Okay. And that's the only reason it happens. And, you know, we keep agitating in our um, advocacy things that uh, there should be a law to prevent mid-year change in formulary. So I got to take a kid who I've titrated up so carefully, has been doing great. And all of a sudden, I got to put him on a different drug, which may not work. And it's going to take another uh, four, six weeks to titrate. Right. You have to to prove it to somebody that is not a physician, which is infuriating. And I totally agree with your description of it as an art form. I think so much of behavioral medicine really is. And yet there is some there are some guidelines that really can help you. So it's not just totally a free for all, because I think that scares people when it's like, I want to do the right thing, but it's cumbersome. And I, you know, this, like, I got to try this and that is hard when you're starting out. I think once you've been doing that for a while, you have a better sense and you don't have to know or use all the medications. I think you need to be comfortable with a group of them. Certainly SSRIs. I mean, I think that just has to be part of what we do, but it worries me that early career, not so much early career, but trainees are just not getting enough training in behavioral health. And it's not just about meds. It's all the things related. And that frustrates me. It's terrible. But when we're back to basic stimulants, You basically have to pick one from column A, which is methylphenidate-related drugs, or one from column B, which is amphetamine-based drugs. Out of those, there should be two or three that you're comfortable with. So I I tend to use the dexmethylphenidate, uh, which is name brand Focalin, uh, XR. And then um, in that vein, you can mix and match short acting and long acting. And that, that really is, you have to know the difference. And then on the other score, you look at Adderall and Adderall XR. Now there's currently a national shortage of short acting Adderall. Isn't that night that we live in the first world country, but you know, sometimes that's an issue, but that would be your other choice. And Almost no one wants to start with short acting medications now because no one wants to go to the school nurse. So you really need to start out with a long acting medication. And just because it says it's long acting doesn't mean it's long acting. They all say 12 hours. Some of them you get eight. Some of them you get 10. A handful you sometimes get 12. And you have to understand that because everyone metabolizes differently. And you have to ask the patient, say, when does this wear off? And when do you need more? And do you get a, a withdrawal effect where you get really antsy and crabby late in the day while the thing's wearing off? And then you have to titrate. 
what I do, and I see next to no one do, and I haven't gotten much pushback, I will give a patient two different strengths on their initial visit. So say I'll use 10 milligrams of uh, uh, dexmethylphenidate and 15 milligrams of dexmethylphenidate. And then I'll say, pick one from column A, one from column B, or both, depending on the effect you have. And the other thing you have to realize is you don't need to scratch your head for 10 days to see whether this stuff is working. It's going to be obvious in two or three days. And so that's a big plus to treating ADHD is that in two weeks, I probably can get through four doses of titration. But if I trust the parent enough, I'll say, give them 10 for a couple of days. It'll probably do nothing. Give them 15, see what happens, and then go up a little more, 20 or even 25. And then let's come back and follow up in two right. weeks, not a month. And you see, very, you know, sometimes the insurance companies push back saying, oh, why aren't you using 25s when you're writing 10s and 15s? But so far, I haven't gotten any pushback on that. So if anybody wants to try it, I think that's the best way to titrate with all of these drugs, except some of the new ones that don't give you that option. Yeah, and I think that titration piece and of course, the way the prescriptions are written, that makes it tricky because you have to do a week at a time or however. But yeah, I, to your point, I mean, I too have, have used that titration because it makes such a difference. And you know, when a kid is like, or a parent says, this is like, this was too much. This seemed to be pretty good. And then you can kind of sit there for a bit and, and right. see how it goes. But I also like the frequent, the frequent check-ins. And I wanted to kind of walk back to a little bit where you were talking about the assessment piece and just say, okay, here's a kid. And I know a lot of pediatricians are using behavioral screeners, sometimes something like the pediatric symptom checklist that offers, you know, you can mark externalizing and attentional symptoms. And so let's say somebody comes in, the mom isn't even bringing it up, but she, when you ask her, you know, are there any concerns? It's like, well, yeah. So, how do you how do you recommend starting with that? My kid's not paying attention, or the teacher says he's not staying, or she's not staying in her seat. Where do you start? What what's your kind of beginning? This is not a by the way at a checkup diagnosis. Okay. Oh, well, it often way, is. It often it, is a by the way, but it's not a by the way. Only appointment. if you allow it. Only if you allow it, you what you have to do, unfortunately, and most pediatricians won't do this because we feel so sorry for patients, is that this diagnosis has to include multiple high-level, longer visits, okay? And if you don't do that, one, you don't ask the right questions or all the questions, two, you won't get paid enough because one hour appointment, uh, I can do a lot better doing four sore throats in that hour than I can one ADHD. And so you have to break this up into defined pieces. What I've liked to do was to have an intake visit saying, I'm not doing anything here. I just want to get a, a high level view of what's going on. And I'll just ask them a free flowing kind of what's going on. What does the teacher say? What have you noticed? Where does it happen? And then and then after that, I decide, I give them some of my screeners and then I say, well, let's come back for a much more in-depth history. And then I give them a family mental health history to fill out, the Vanderbilts for home and teacher. And just uh, and then I say, I want you to be prepared to tell me how you did in school and how dad did in school. And I want to know, I would like to get a little narrative from the teacher, just a paragraph, what they notice. And and that's another visit. And then there needs to be another visit where you sit down and discuss your results. You shouldn't discuss it and make the diagnosis at that first visit and discuss it with the parents because one, you need to think about it. And two, um, you need to get buy-in because the next visit should be a treatment options visit. And it should be pretty much if you've made the diagnosis, and I'm making that assumption, if you made the diagnosis after taking a very good and very long history, then your third visit should be a treatment and teaching visit. You need to say, okay, here are the options. And why in the world would giving a kid speed slow him down? You have to explain that stuff. And I think in, in your psychologist podcast, the executive functioning talk and something like that, that's a good place to at least start with that. 
And, and then, then thereafter, after that visit, you need to have multiple follow-up visits. And I was a big proponent saying kids should be seen at the minimum every three months. And I got a lot of pushback about that. Oh, no, we can see him every six months. No, you can't. You can only, you need to see him every three months. And I don't care how stable they are because maybe they developed anxiety or some other comorbidity. Maybe the dose has changed. Maybe you uh, lost your home and you need to uh, address that. Every six months or a year is unacceptable in my book. Okay. Some people would argue about that. And so you have to have a lot of follow up and you really need to see them within under a month for any dosage change. So for me, I might do four dosage changes and see them in, in two weeks rather than try to drag them in for four visits. And I think every three months is good, but more frequently when you're titrating. And then once you're stable, then you could do it every three months. But we will not refill a prescription if you haven't been in every three months. And I know you're relying on parents who probably have the same diagnosis as their kids to do all this stuff, which is hard. But it's very important to have close monitoring and follow up and taking some of those visits to continue some sort of education about the process. And I think... I, I would totally agree. I mean, I, I, I would see kids really frequently, uh, you know, and generally every three months for any kids that I was treating for behavioral health concerns, because I, I think the other is that it's really important to get to know the families and the kids and the context that they're living in, because the medication is important, but it's all the other stuff that really fills in the blank spaces for me. And I think it helps take out some of the trial and error because now you're thinking about this doesn't sound like attentional executive function. This sounds like mood or this sounds like sleep. And, you know, we need to talk about your sleep or this sounds like maybe substance use. Maybe there's, you know, that marijuana that you're smoking to get you to sleep at night or take the edge off your worry, you know, I don't, I don't know of a study that, you know, treats, you know, using marijuana plus a stimulant. So I can't tell you how that's affecting your brain, (laughs) you know, so the, and, and you can't do that if you don't know these families and the kids really well. And it takes time. And that's why you need to have frequent enough visits to justify your time. And then you have to set up your office to do that. And, you know, I don't have enough time here to cover all the nuances, but in the practice guideline, the second piece, other than my barriers analysis, is a process of care, is how do you do it in a pediatric office? And that's expanded in great detail in the ADHD toolbook. And you can Google AAP ADHD toolbook, and you'll get a wealth of resources for a very reasonable amount of money, considering what you pay for textbooks and journals these days. And it's very, very practical because we wrote it to be practical. And I can expand on all of these things, but I think the important thing you have to do is number one, you have to know your medicine. You have to know what ADHD is. You have to know about executive functioning. You have to know how stimulants work and you have got to get comfortable with what you're doing. Next, you got to manage the barriers. That's uh, people don't have the time. They don't want to pay. Insurance won't pay. They can't get in because they have no transportation and the bus route doesn't go by your office. And so you have to manage the barriers in your office that you know are going to come up. Okay. And another piece of that is you got to figure out how to structure the visits. I talked about the way I like to structure the visits. You may want to structure them differently, but you have to find a systematic and not rigid, but pretty consistent way to structure each of these visits with a purpose. And then you have to figure out the setting. Luckily, telehealth is great for this stuff. If you like telehealth, I personally like to look people in the eye, certainly at the beginning, because I find you lose that with telehealth. And I think in the beginning, I don't think telehealth is particularly useful. I think when things are more stable, it is. But um, in the beginning, when you're trying to understand what really is going on, I think you need to look people directly in the eye face to face. Right. 
people argue about that too. Yeah, and I have to say, okay. I found that, uh, you know, the tele, if I knew the patients really well, I, you know, I thought it worked really well. And I do think that, you know, like certainly the barrier transportation that you mentioned is a big one and time, you know, ease parents don't have to take out, you know, they're already at home, perhaps. I did want to go back a little bit to um, gathering collateral information. And what I think is a barrier, of course, time um, is teacher collaboration. I mean, we really need to get their input and, you know, getting the Vanderbilts and during the pandemic, you know, when schools were closed, that was nearly, how, how did you do that? How does a teacher, no one do you just thing. can't, but do you have any tips and tricks that you've used to try and, um, you know, build relationships with teachers or get their information? Cause it matters tremendously. It's very hard. And I'll tell you that in an ideal world, I'd be calling up the school every day about these kids in the real world. I don't. And some people are more dedicated than I am, perhaps. But the reality is you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. And I think handing out the Vanderbilts, saying if the teacher wants to call me, they're welcome to. Asking them to write a very brief, don't burden them because they have 10 other ADHD kids in their class. And uh, have them write a little narrative of what they what is going on. Bring in the report cards. You can do a lot of that stuff. But I don't know, first calls and first person contacts with teachers are exceptionally hard unless you work in an academic setting where you don't have to justify your existence financially. And again, that's a pointed uh, private practice kind of opinion, but I well, think but it's, it's true in the real It's real life. I know when I was able to connect with teachers, first of all, they were incredibly grateful and surprised that I would call and two, so helpful, particularly if I had a really difficult situation you know, a, a kid that had maybe complex medical or something like that, where it was crucial to know what was happening during the day. And the teacher was invaluable. I couldn't have known what to do without that. So I would definitely give a shout out to do if you can. And here's where, honestly, if you do have integrated behavioral health and have the luxury of being able to figure out how to put a social worker or another mental health professional in your practice, this is the work that they can do, which is, which oh, is yeah. huge. I mean, it changed my life having access and, and I think, and that's a whole nother topic about, you know, paying Completely. how to pay for it, but it's worth every penny, but you know, that's, that's harder said than done, but there is a role for that. I think care coordination. A great role if you can find it and if you can make it yeah. work. And that's part of what I discussed in the barrier statement. But the other things to set up your practice to do this, if we're making a list that comes from the ADHD toolkit is learn how to code for all your services. And you alluded to that. And more importantly, which pediatricians are terrible at, is you got to document your thinking. We hate doing that. And one of the many reasons I despise electronic records is because they turn a narrative history into a collection of lists, and it takes too darn long to write unless you have scribes, which is another expense, and that's a whole nother talk in and of itself. But um, you have to write something to justify your thinking for a level four or five visit, or you can document by time. But you have to document something. And most pediatricians are terrible at that and subject themselves to audit if they don't do it. Well, and I would say one other tool, and again, it may vary by where you are an institution, and that was if you could talk and use your phone, um, I was able to do like Dragon with that. It was amazingly helpful. And Really? Yeah, it was, you know, the artificial intelligence has to get used to voice recognition and that, but it could be very helpful yes. because you're right. I mean, you can template some of it, you know, some of the basic information, but so much is a narrative and, and that's where the, the info is, right? Yeah. Do you talk in front of patients when you do that? I'm just curious because we don't do it. Oh, you so no, you don't no, dictate no. during no, visit. no, no. The point I need to make though is we talked all about what you should be doing as the doctor. If you want to do this successfully in the office, you are not the only cog. Oh, in this no, wheel. no, no. Yep, yep. You have to train people who make appointments and make them understand the different visits and just don't write ADHD check for every visit. 
You need to train your front desk staff to who also make appointments to what is this visit for? How long is it going to take? This is all in the toolkit. You have to train your clinical staff to understand this. And you have to you have to train your colleagues who don't want to understand it because they may be a cranky old guy like me who doesn't want to <laughs> do this. Okay. And yet you've chosen so, to. You've chosen to. I have, but that's me. But you have to have your colleagues buy into this and to not bust you because maybe you're a little less productive. Right. And you know, you can always make the argument, well, if I do it, you don't have to. So look at it that way. Right. <laughs> you have to train everyone in the practice. And that's where that toolkit's very helpful because it gives you a lot of templated forms, things to think about, planning tools for getting the office to do that. So I highly recommend this. And I don't get a commission on these sales, but I highly recommend that you do that. And just based on what you said, I wanted to get into the mood thing a little sure. bit. Is that that that's no, okay? No, absolutely. Because I, I think we covered the stimulants. I mean, it's sort of A and B columns, really. And maybe we can talk a little bit about non-stimulants, but I I think sure. diving into the mood piece because comorbid anxiety and depression are so common. Yes. So common. Very so common. so have at it. Okay. And when when I say you pick one two different drugs, you have to know that there are five different varieties of a lot of these right, right. drugs. You have to know how whether you can mix and match short and long term long acting. You have to decide whether the non-stimulant treatments for ADHD, such as clonidine and stratera and uh, Squelbri, which is the new one, are worth the money or do anything, and whether you're comfortable with them. They all have a role. They all work to some degree, but the bottom line of the guideline is that stimulants are way better than any of them. And the non-stimulants are useful as adjunct treatment, add-on treatments without having to worry about more controlled substances. So I just wanted to put that in there to just make it more complex. That's why you have to learn the medicine. And it's not that complicated. It's no different from what you do for asthma. It's no different from any of the other chronic diseases we manage. But for some reason, because it's mental health, we're terrified to do any of it. I couldn't say it better than that. And and the thing <laughs> is, it's, I don't know, to me, it's just more interesting. It's really interesting to to kind of dig into and drill down and have these conversations. And so I, yeah, I, I, you're preaching you to the, you're the preaching time. to the choir, but, oh, I but know. talk a, um, I'm trying to convince talk you. a little bit about the mood piece about, yes. about how you might approach that when, you know, you're, it isn't the light switch. It's like, well, it's not as dim as it, you know, it, it's a little brighter, but there's this other that's right. not executive function. I'd been practiced 30 years and I'd never once treated anxiety. <laughs> never once. And then in the last 10 years, I was looking around and seeing that none of these kids can find any help anywhere under any circumstances, no matter what their insurance is. No one will treat children unless you pay exorbitant amounts out of pocket. And next to no one will do that. And so I thought to myself, well, am I going to let these people drown or am I going to try to help them a little? And that's when I started teaching myself how to do anxiety and maybe a little depression, because even for me, the fear of depression is very high. OK, but anxiety I found to be very easily done in uh, primary care. And since anxiety and depression are two sides of the same coin, you just have to be careful that there's no suicidal thinking, self-harm, harm to others going on. But I sat down and I said, you got to learn these drugs. Okay. But why am I so fearful of these drugs? Two words, black box. <laughs> okay. That was another incredible incredibly stupid thing the FDA did by putting that black box on there. They did it without any evidence of real suicidality. They did it when the teen said, I'm going to kill myself. That was suicidality. Teens say that 10 times a day. Um, and that black box was a disaster. All the people like like us who were prescribing that suddenly stopped prescribing on it because they're going to get sued because of that black box. And it was a disaster. So I managed to somewhat get over my fear 
and start to do some anxiety. And what I did was I tried to select my patients first only for people that had really obvious symptoms, people who had panic, people who were clearly anxious. And if I was going to use SSRIs alone, those are the people I'd select. And what I found with is with anxiety, SSRIs work much quicker than they say they do. And I would see improvement in severe anxiety within a week or two, not the six or eight weeks that they claim it takes, because it doesn't take that long. But you got to go through the same titration. You have to start with low and slow, and then once a week, maybe titrate up. So you start with 25 milligrams of Zoloft or whatever, and then bump it up to 50, 75, whatever you need, and see what effects you have. You use the same kind of rating forms for anxiety. You can use simple ones like the GAD, GAD, which is very short, or something like the SCARED, which I think is very good. It's a little lot longer, but people do it. And then you have something objective to look at to say, oh, SCARED scores went down from 40 to 20. <laughs> so, you know, you, you have something objective to watch. And 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 then you got to get comfortable with anxiety. Now, with depression, maybe you can help me here because I'm still nervous about depression and I'm pretty aggressive as you might see. And I still get nervous that I'm going to miss someone going to kill themselves and they're going to. So, yes. I don't know. So, yes, I can can tell you um, kind of my feeling about or kind of my approach to depression. One is I think it's really important that we talk about it because it's so common and, and it's just even more so. And I think the other piece and again, this is my own experience, but I know that there have been subsequent studies looking at suicidality and SSRIs that the the risks are way lower than the FDA made it sound. And that in my experience, I mean, I could honestly probably count less than five kids that I truly felt like the medication induced suicidal ideation. There are plenty of kids that already had suicidal ideation, but I just didn't see that it got worse. So I do think, and and Bright Futures is kind of underscoring this, I do think that it's important to specifically ask about suicidality in any kid that you're seeing for behavioral health. And there are good tools like the um, Ask Suicide Screen or the Ask and also the Columbia. And I think you can be pointed with kids. Have you had thoughts of killing yourself? Have you ever had those thoughts? Have you ever tried that? And that we can use those screeners and not be scared because the reality is in primary care, most of those kids are not imminently at risk. So you have time and they don't need to go to the emergency room. And there are evidence-based things like safety planning, counseling access to lethal means. So, and medications can be extraordinarily helpful, but there are other things too. And I was just at a conference with a child psychiatrist. And, you know, he said, really, there's such a huge impact of ACEs and and trauma that may impact the mood piece. And so we really need to think about that and be very thoughtful about medications. And again, stress the start low and go slow. And he really said even starting lower. Now, I don't know that that's across the board for all. Yeah, he was like, you know, take the Citalopram and cut the smallest one in half. I mean, he was and and go slow. So um, I probably was not that cautious, but um, you know, and and you have to know you have to know the medications. You have to know that fluoxetine has a really long half life, and that probably yeah. using Paxil's not a great thing anymore. I just took that way out a long time no. ago. So I, I think there are some things I did yeah. a really nice podcast with um, Dr. Jeffrey Strawn um, and I'll put in the show notes what episode it was. And he talked about anxiety meds and specifically addressed the black box about that. And he was really helpful about it. He does all of his research on anxiety and, and SSRI. So I, I'll highlight that, but I could say lots and lots about suicidal ideation, but don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to treat. It offers huge relief. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but when the black box came out, uh, SSRI use decreased 20% suicide 
increased 20%. And the FDA says, hmm, I wonder if that's related. Yeah. And they still haven't taken it away, which is, it's so unhelpful, but I do think, you know, a lot of people have marched forward, but I know that that's a real concern for folks. And you, I mean, and I always tell parents, you know, I need to tell you this, that this is out there. You're going to see this on the medication. My experience is that is not generally the case, but these are the things we need to look for. I mean, I think you have to be upfront about it. You can't hide it, but I do think that primary care can treat mild to moderate anxiety and depression. But as a pediatrician, I've got to do several things. One, I have to make it clear to them that I I may play one on TV, but I'm not a psychiatrist, okay? And what I'm doing is somewhat outside my comfort level, but it's either me or nothing. Because so you have zero resources, unless you use one of these state programs where call a psychiatrist to hold my hand, which are quite useful, which I do a lot. But from a medical legal point of view, I, I do a ton of expert witnessing for the last 35 years for both sides. And I got to tell you that you, if you're going to put a kid on SSRIs, you darn well better mention that black box in your note and that you discuss it with the parent and that you darn well better see them probably weekly, if not uh, bi-weekly or weekly, and to ask them about suicidal ideation and to talk to them until you've got a stable dose. Well, and I do think a, a couple of things that you mentioned, I think using a screener like the ASK the PHQ-9, I think you can document and keep track of that. So, and I think that that should be routine when you're treating kids for mental health concerns. I think people need to be using screeners routinely and each and every time and, and talking about it and sorting out, you know, I think you need to know how bad is this? If it's like, yeah, I've had thoughts, but I would never do that. And you've explored that. That's very different than I've got a loaded gun at home and I'm intent on that, which I think is very uncommon in primary care, but it's certainly not impossible. And you have to ask to know, right? Right. The other thing I did want to point out as far as getting comfortable, and honestly, this is a big reason why I do this podcast, because I felt like for me, like you, I did so much learning on my own, going to conferences, reading, talking to colleagues, but uh, you know, and so being able to talk to people that have experience and expertise like you to really start thinking about this. So, you know, I've got 110 plus episodes on every topic you can think of in mental health and I'm happy to do others if people let me know what they need so that these are the experts in the field talking about this to help you feel more comfortable. There is the REACH Institute, yeah, which is another training program, which is really great. It's intensive. It's It was expensive when I did it, but I learned a lot. Um, I've done psychopharmacology courses through the American Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Association. ACAP has their meetings annually. And I would a huge shout out to the Child Psychiatry Access Programs. I actually am a consultant to our Michigan program, MC3. It changed my life. They help me. They're they're your friends. They'll they're right there. And even though we wish that we could have them see all of our kids, they don't need to be seeing those kids. They need to be seeing the ones that are super complicated. And we can't tie them up with mild to moderate stuff that we can do, but they can help guide us. And what happens over time when you call, the next time you're like, oh, this is what they generally recommend. I could try that too. And I know I can call them if I have questions. So I'll put a link to the um, National Network of Child Psychiatry Access Programs map so that you can see where where your state person, how to contact them. There are still a few states, uh, Arizona, South Dakota, Idaho, and Ohio, that don't yet have programs, but there is HRSA funding out there. And I, I think they're in the works of doing that. So reach out. They're tremendously helpful. So thanks for that reminder and shout out. I'm going to insert another uh, business thing. Nobody who listens to this podcast wants to hear about business, but if you it's the reality we have to live with, though. And what I say in all my talks are doing good and doing well are not mutually exclusive. Pediatricians think that seem to think that if you're making money, you're not doing good. And the goal here is to do good and make a living. There's nothing that makes it mutually exclusive. 
One of the barriers is that when you do all these screeners, insurance companies fight about the $6 they pay you to do them. And it's an outrage because one replacement hip and a 90-year-old, you can do 20,000 screeners for that. that. They don't fight about the hip, but they fight about the screeners. It's appalling. So that's another barrier. And the medical legal stuff, you do have to document what you're talking about. As an expert, I can tell you that in court, what you write in that chart can really mess you up, even if you didn't do anything wrong. Okay. So not and, to scare off our listeners, but I think the key point you said there is document and, and just make it very clear that you had the discussions and document your thinking process. And I think that's true with suicidal ideation. Um, I think people are really worried if I ask, I'm at risk of being sued. And the conferences I've been to where there's actually been an attorney, what he said is, if you're using standard screens, if you're using evidence-based risk assessment tools, safety planning, access to lethal means discussion, he said, I don't, I don't pursue those cases because they've done the highest level of care. Now, all that takes time. So to your point of we need to get paid for the work we do, absolutely, absolutely. And another thing is that I can tell you now that I dread seeing teenagers a lot. And now that I'm old, I have a lot of teenagers, you know, so it, it's like, oh, my God, how many by the ways am I going to get in one well child visit? Because people have the perspective that well child is nothing. It's just listening to the heart and eh, it's nothing. So I want to discuss his asthma, his, his anxiety and suicidal, his ADHD. I want to discuss that all during the checkup. And you and can't do it in 20 minutes. <laughs> you cannot allow that. Yeah. yeah have to say, you're going to have to have you come back to discuss that. And it's a rare pediatrician that will actually say that. And if you can't say that, you're going to have trouble implementing this stuff. Right. And, and I think that that's, you know, when you look at physician satisfaction with their career, pediatricians still really like their job. By and large, when they've, they've looked at, there's a longitudinal study going on in the AAP called Places, where they've been surveying physicians for years since residency, and they love their jobs by and large, but the things that get in the way are work hours and not being paid and respected for their time. And so I think that, you know, this has to be possible to do, and we have to continue to advocate for that. And I, I think you can't turn anywhere and not hear about, you know, mental health being a crisis and oh a concern. Um, to your point about adolescence, I'm going to add in a, a exclamation point that I love teenagers. Oh, I good. just, can I send them I, your way? <laughs> I find them delightful, to be honest. And I would point people to Ken Ginsburg. Um, his podcast on adolescence, because he talks about the joy and that I'm not to say that there aren't complications. And he just published a book um, with the AAP called Congratulations, You're Having a Teen. So um, to, to the to the listeners out there, fear not, fear not, <laughs> enjoy the teenager, they can be just, I think the um, there's, they can be so insightful and it's also exciting seeing them launch to adulthood, especially when you can be such a key person in helping them make that launch. So that's just my plug for teens. And I'm going to tell you that my most grateful patients and thankful patients are not the kid I saved from dying from meningitis. It's the ADHD parents. To those parents, you walk on water because you changed their lives. And it's it's very satisfying. And just a couple practical points. I know I'm all over the place here, which is that's not okay. <laughs> that's but, a conversation, um, not a lecture. <laughs> is that um, if you have a comorbidity like anxiety, depression, and ADHD, it's my recommendation, and you may disagree, that I would always address the ADHD first for several reasons. One, you can treat them quickly. And you can find out if a lot of the anxiety, depression is because they're worried about tanking school and they're worried about their parents and teachers yelling at them. And if you can get the ADHD under control, a lot of that anxiety and depression goes away. So that should always be addressed first, I think. And there is nothing wrong with using SSRIs and ADHD meds in the stimulants in the same kid. Okay. Absolutely. And I just to your first point, I think it's helpful to ask the patient and the parent 
if you do identify that they have both ADHD and anxiety or depression is to ask, you know, which one is getting in the way having sorted out, I think your point about, um, you know, kids that are anxious because they're failing in school and you go there, or is it a kid who's got, you know, clear panic or clear um, like OCD or phobia or something. And in that case, you may have to go the route of treating the anxiety first um, because sometimes they're not paying attention because they're so anxious. So there is that caveat, but you're right. You can, the, the ADHD, you can, you can get information much more quickly with a stimulant versus an SSRI. So yeah, it's a, it's a dance, right? I'm just making a general statement for people because most pediatricians are so uncomfortable with this. They don't know what to do. So I think as a generality, what I said holds, obviously what you said is way more insightful and deep <laughs> dive and everything else. But I mean, if you gotta have, if you're, if you have no idea what to do, I'd probably treat the ADHD first. So well, this is, uh, this is we're sitting down at the coffee table talking about the realities of doing this work, and it is an art, and there is no, you know, it's not um, a checklist, it's not straightforward all the time, and, and I think part of it is, is learning enough so that you can be flexible to, to, you know, go both ways because sometimes it's one, sometimes the other. And, you know, you use the expert advice that's out there. You get to know your medications, not all of them, but a group of them. And then you use people like your child psychiatrist that you can get on the phone and, and learn, learn the stuff. So listen to some podcasts, that'll help. (laughs) So, well, listen, I want to thank you. This has been a really fun conversation and I appreciate um, your forthrightness and honesty. And I I mean, I know you've been doing this a long time, so you've got, you've got that behind you. And, you know, this is, this is hard stuff and we should get paid for the work we do. And, and our kids depend on us being able to be in practice You know, if we can't do the work because insurances don't pay us for the work, then we aren't available. We can't keep our lights on. So the old statement, no margin, no mission. If you can't keep the lights on, you've got no mission. You know, the reality is, you know, what is more important than kids and why are we not putting our money there in every I Michael Klein, um, who I adore, he was a pediatric surgeon with the heart of gold who said, you know, that if we put children first in every decision we make as a country, we would be in a much different place. And if we valued the children, we paid teachers what they're worth because they are with our kids every day. If they pay those that care for them, the child care workers, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. But, you know, if, if we valued kids the way we should, it might look different. So I'm going to end with a huge thank you. This has been so fun. And, um, and again, I appreciate, yeah, you're just being honest in who you are. And uh, I, I'm sure your patients enjoy those visits with you. Oh, I try. <laughs> well, listen, take care and have a great day. Well, thank you so much for having me. It, it's good to, even if it was a little diffuse, it's good to, uh, <laughs> I can do the lecture. It's a lot more structured during a lecture, but you know, it's good to get this stuff out there and get people to thinking how multifaceted all of this stuff is and the resources, the, the clinical practice guideline from 2019 is readily available on the AAP website and, and that's free. And the toolkit is, I think it's 150 bucks and sometimes you can get 10% off. So you know, in the scheme of things, that's not a lot. That's okay. a, that's affordable. And I'll make sure I put the um, links to those in the show notes so you can find those. And uh, again, thanks so much for your time. Have a great day and uh, keep taking care of kids. Thank you. It was a pleasure. What a fun conversation. And I just love Dr. Lesson's candor and honesty and, you know, just telling it like it is. So 
here are my takeaways. Number one, of course, thank you to Dr. Lesson for his wisdom and contributions to the field and years of experience. Number two, first, the resources, the ADHD Clinical Practice Guideline and the ADH Toolkit are both available through the AAP. These are practical and should be on every pediatric shelf. And you can see the show notes for links. Number three, Dr. Lesson wants clinicians to know that the authors of these tools wanted to address real life, the barriers to caring for kids with ADHD, things like insurance payment, time, and access to mental health care services. And, you know, he really wanted this to be a practical guide for those of you that are doing this work every day. Number four. 80% of kids with ADHD are treated by pediatricians, yet, Dr. Lesson notes, many are not comfortable with treatment. Number five, it gets even trickier when there are comorbidities, and two-thirds of kids with ADHD have other diagnoses like anxiety, depression, learning disabilities, or OCD. Number six, and then there's trauma to consider, of course. Number seven, treatment and management is an art form. There is some trial and error, but the approach should be thoughtful and systematic. Number eight, know your meds. Stimulants, non-stimulants, and SSRIs should be part of your tools in your toolkit. Understand the nuances, and when using stimulants, start low, but titrate frequently. And Dr. Lesson talked a lot about what that looked like for him. Number nine, manage your barriers. Look at your office workflows. Do you need to create special templates if you use them? And then, of course, staff education and your own too. Bring your colleagues into the picture. How are you going to approach caring for children with ADHD and other mental health concerns? Number 10, although the topic often arises as an, oh, by the way, and I know you all know what I'm talking about, this is not a quick assessment. Number 11, Dr. Lesson described breaking up the evaluation into multiple high-level appointments. Number 12, start with the intake and psychoeducation. And stay tuned because Dr. Colleen Cullinan has two episodes, episodes 119 and 120, but also episodes 88 and 109 that all are addressing psychoeducation and executive function. So I really want you to check those out. When talking with the families at that first visit, you really need to elicit what are their concerns? What are they seeing? And when did these symptoms start? Number 13, collect an in-depth history, family history, medical history, all the things, and obtain screens and information like the Vanderbilt teacher narrative and report cards, as well as other collateral input if there's grandparents or coaches. The more information you have, the better picture you have of how this kid is functioning. And then review this extensively with the family. Number 14, this is appointment now number three, go over treatment options and again review psychoeducation and set expectations. And then finally, number 15, follow-up visits. You may want to start with one two to four weeks if you're going to start medication, and then at least every three months. Dr. Lesson doesn't think six months is an adequate time interval. Number 16, document, code, and bill for your incredibly valuable time. Sometimes we are just too nice. Number 17, treat comorbidities. Use screens like the GAD-7, the SCARED, the PHQ-9, and the Pediatric Symptom Checklist to really, you know, try and get that full picture. Number 18, sometimes using stimulants will give you quick information, but if the presenting concern is the anxiety, you may need to treat that first, and that's really a nuance, and I think it helps if you ask the family, what's your biggest concern? Sometimes the anxiety is related to the ADHD because the kid's not doing well in school and they're worried that may be the issue. But sometimes there's primary anxiety that is really in the forefront. You have to make sure that the reason they're not paying attention is because they're worried so much. So, you know, again, this takes time to sort this out. The advantage, of course, with the stimulants is they give you immediate information, but sometimes you need to go with the SSRI first. 
And for more on SSRIs, you can check out Dr. Jeffrey Strawn's episode, and I'll put that link in the show notes. Number 19, understand the black box warning for SSRIs, but know that the actual risk of completed suicides is extraordinarily low. And in fact, in the studies, there was no completed suicides. There was some suicidal ideation, but the question's out as to whether or not that was due to the medication or was it due to the underlying illness. You do need to discuss this with families and document the conversation. Number 20, learn more. You can check out your child psychiatry access program and as always, check out the map to see where yours is located. And then the REACH Institute offers a really nice training. It's an in-depth peer kind of program where you get to meet with other people and then review cases for about six months. So it's a really good learning strategy. And number 21, the treatment of ADHD can be life-altering be the change. And again, this is so common out there and we really want kids to function well and to, you know, find all their successes. So, you know, I think the bottom line is it's really important to make an accurate diagnosis and then gauge your treatment depending on what the family is kind of looking for and what the kid needs. And then, you know, know your stuff. So you've got this. I want to thank you all for your time as always. So appreciate you. And I am working on something new and exciting. So I'm just going to put in a little bug in your ear to look for a new strategy coming out in January. So um, for those of you who are interested, you can sign up on my email list at my webpage, www.medicalb as in boy hs.com. And um, if I get your email, I will send you a newsletter and we've got some other things going on. So stay tuned. And as always, keep doing all that you do for kids. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.